And would you join your hearts together with me in a word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we come as your creatures, but even more as your children. And as we do, we come with a heart yearning to know your your purpose for our lives and Lord, those things that, that, that you have made us to be the man or the woman that you've intended of us. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us in this moment here, Lord, what truly matters in life so that we might with freedom and, Lord, with joy, be able to fulfill the purpose for which you have made us and, Lord, in that fulfillment, might praise you and glorify your holy name. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, some of you are, may be familiar with uh, a practice that Christians have done for years uh, called having a life verse. You may have something written down in the flyleaf of your Bible, a life verse. Uh, for many, it's a practice that began in Sunday school, where as a child you were challenged to select a verse from the Bible that would serve as your guide into life. Some people have fun with that practice. I had a friend that, who insisted that his life verse was Acts chapter 10, verse 13. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> he, he was a rather large fellow. Uh, <clears throat> he explained that he actually chose that verse for obvious bacon-related reasons as his life verse. I thought that was funny. Uh, but a life verse is simply a verse from the Bible that is intended to stir up inspiration for your own personal life. It is intended to become a source of strength and encouragement for you. It, it is intended to bring comfort to your heart in troubling times or bring joy to you uh, in a day when you are on top of the world. Which, which really raises the question, can you have more than just one life verse? And the answer is very simple. Of course you can. As, as you spend time reading the Bible and going through the lives of the Old Testament saints, you'll find plenty of material, verses there that, will, that, that, that fertilize your own personal spiritual growth, and, and you can begin to pluck verses for yourself out of all of these lives. And you'll discover that with that growth comes a maturity to comprehend more about how God works, not just in your life, but in life at large, and how, how, how different seasons end up bringing about new challenges and opportunities that produce a, a list, then, of life verses that have proved meaningful to you in your daily walk with God. Now this morning, as we continue our selective journey through the Old Testament lives, we come to the reign of Solomon, the king, David's son. And the the one who is commonly known as the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. Now I have been looking forward to this particular message because when everything is said and done about Solomon, he, he has provided for me a simple verse that has become in this season of my life, uh, a life verse. It is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and it's verse 4. And it is now my life verse. It guides me, it inspires me, and it sends me on my way, and it reads this way. It is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. That's my verse. Now let me repeat that. It is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Have you got that? 
Some of you are sitting there going, what? (laughs) More on that later. First, let's meet Solomon. Solomon steps to the stage at the end of 1 Chronicles, that book in the Bible, in a moment of blessing and in a moment of honor. We read about him emerging on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 39. It says, As Solomon became king of all Israel, all Israel cried out, Long live King Solomon! And in verse 40, in 1 Kings chapter 1, they all lined up after him, and they sang with great joy, so much so that the earth shook at the noise. Can you imagine such a song creating an earthquake? You couldn't ask for a better start, could you? And from there, from that moment, for 40 years, Solomon's reign as king was considered to be the golden age of Israel. So much so that in Matthew, uh, Jesus refers back to Solomon as being a time of being in all glory, in Solomon, in all of his glory, in chapter 6, verse 29 of of Matthew. And, and, and Jesus even refers to the greatness of his wisdom in chapter 12, verse 42. Now, when you read through the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, what you do find about Solomon is a breathless string of, of success that comes from the building of the kingdom to the building of the temple. As one writer has put it, under Solomon, Jerusalem glistened like a brilliant gem in the golden setting between the liquid sapphire of the Mediterranean and the mineral-rich sparkle of the Dead Sea, the central stone of the empire where peace radiantly shone for 40 years. How would you like to have him for your press agent? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And you can read pretty much the whole of the 40-year reign in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, And in the first 10 chapters, you will find a record of success unlike any other. One achievement piling up after the next to the point where the glory of Solomon uh, becomes the envy of the entire world, at least of the Middle East. So much so that that, that the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of Sheba, I love saying that, in, in Africa is compelled to travel all the way from her kingdom in Africa to see what's going on with her own eyes. And when she does, it, it literally takes her breath away. We read that in, in 1 Kings. Then she said to the king Solomon, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about you, your words and your wisdom. Oh, nevertheless, I didn't believe the reports until I came and my eyes beheld it. Behold, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me, and you surpass every report I ever heard. Whoa. I read that and I suppose that it shouldn't have come as a surprise, especially considering the promise that God had made Solomon at the very beginning of his reign in 1 Kings chapter 3. In verse uh, 5 of, of, of 1 Kings 3, it says, The Lord appeared to Solomon and said, Ask of uh, what you wish me to give you. And in verse 9, Solomon responded, I like it. There's a little space between verse 5 and verse 9. It gives him a chance to be able to, to, to think about what his wish will be. And then he says, um, Give thy servant. Now, I've I, I got to stop at that moment. He says, Give thy servant. Notice the humility in those words. In verse 7, he has his pretty priorities pretty well set. 
He realizes that it is the Lord who is God. It is the Lord who reigns over kings and who had made a king out of David. And before him, Solomon now confesses that I am but a little child. I am ignorant of the way of kings. And so in verse 9 he says, Give thy servant rather than give me because I'm a king. He says, give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people and to discern between good and evil. And to that we read, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing, in verse 12, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one be like you arising after you. And even more in verse 13, I have also given you what you have not asked. Along with this, there's a bonus to this. It's like that television commercial. But wait, there's more. Riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all of your days. Now, you can't read that without getting a clear picture of what the source of his success has become. At the end of chapter 1, of the chapter in 1 Kings chapter 3, we can see what Israel would then later see in abundance in verse 28, that the wisdom of God was with him. And while Solomon's heart was tender and childlike before the Lord, God showered him with blessings of wisdom and knowledge and discernment and strength and riches and fame and vision and skill. Those are all the words that resonate through the, word, uh, through, through the ten chapters of First King that, uh, that define the record of Solomon's reign and the, and the secret of his success. Now you can find all sorts of books on the, in the library that, that, that promised to unleak, uh, un- unlock, I'm sorry, unlock the secrets of success, but I suspect that nothing would come quite as close to what God is capable of delivering by way of his wisdom and by way of his discernment. And not just for Solomon alone. Whatever it was that God had for him became an open secret for all as he wrote the book of Proverbs, the Song of Psalms, and the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, what we have in all these other books are not a record of Solomon's secrets. They become an open book of God's intentions. And King Solomon then makes it clear in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, that the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, you can trust in the Lord with all your heart and, that not, and, and, and not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, you are able to acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, we read, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It's an open secret. It's available for you and me. That's pretty straightforward advice. The type of guidance God gives keeps, keeps laying out for us throughout the entire Bible. We read in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any one of us lacks wisdom, what are we to do? We are to ask God who gives generally to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. Where have you been going to discover your secret for success? 
what, what God has for you and for, and for me isn't reserved just for King Solomon. What, and we would do well to take it all into hand. And, and so would have Solomon, except he didn't take it all into hand. And, and once we get to the high point of his reign in 1 Kings chapter 10, we find Solomon ending up going sideways big time. If you have your Bibles and you open up to 1 Kings chapter 11, you'll find that happening right away in verse 1. It said, now King Solomon, he had a little bit of a problem. He loved many foreign women. How many? Well, verse 3, keep count. 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And the effect, verse 3, his wives led him astray. And verse 4, and as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And the result, verse 11, so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Now you go back to, to God's promise to bless him back in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 13. There was just one caveat in the blessing. Something we should all take to heart. In verse 14, back in chapter 3, he says, I will give riches and honor and all these things, verse 14, but if, and and here's the condition, only if, in the promise, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Well, Solomon didn't. And God lifted his hand, and for all intents and purposes, that silences then the story of Solomon. And as the rest of the chapter 11 becomes a sad record of the kingdom of decay, it all ends in verse 43 with one single verse recording his death, and that's it. Now, I'm not going to go spend time speculating on why Solomon lost his head. Whether it was a matter of political ambition, you'll notice that all of his wives were foreign, which meant that each one of them was secured as an international treaty of some sort to expand the influence of the kingdom. I don't know if it was that or if it was an addition. I don't know. What I do know is that in his run of success, he lost his senses. And he paid for it all with deep regret the type of regret that we find him reflected in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. Now, I love the way Calvin Miller, the Texas uh, pastor and and former professor at at Dallas Seminary, has put in his book of children's poetry uh, with a poem that is entitled uh, Solomon's Sore Lips. The, The book of poetry, by the way, is Apple Snakes and Belly Aches. It's a great little book and I love the poetry in it, but let me read you Solomon's sore lips. King Solomon of Israel had 700 wondrous wives, and when he kissed them all good night, he puckered 700 times. Although he kissed them at a rate of 20.3 per five an hour, it took nearly 3.4 long hours before his last wife was in bed. And Solomon was nearly dead. Overcome by halitosis, lip fatigue by puckerosis, when Solomon first married them, he really didn't have a clue, although it made an awful racket when that great horde said, I do. 
All 700 nagging wives meant just as many pairs of jaws and several million gripes and groans and quite a lot of moms-in-laws. At first he kissed frenetically, but soon just alphabetically. He'd kiss his way from Abigail to Zelpha and of Judea, taking a two ten-minute breaks at Billa and at Leah. He mostly hated Thursdays, for that was concu night. That night, beside his horde of brides, he had to kiss his concubines. While concubines were less favored, he owned 251, so kissing them required an hour if he kissed them on the run. As Solomon grew very old, he left his alphabetical technique and he tried a different way to go. That, he believed, was quite unique and started with the ugliest to get the worst out of the way. Then he kissed the sick ones who had been in bed all day, and he kissed the ones with colds and those with nasal hair, smooching rapidly along until he reached the fair. Uh, But kissing all the wise goodnight gave Solomon his greatest strain. He kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed until his whole mouth felt the pain. Each evening when his job was done, somewhere near 3 o'clock a.m., he always went straight to his bed because he had to wake up at 5 to kiss them all good morning again. I, I heard that when he finally died, he went up to his home on high. It made a chill run down his spine to see a thousand concubines standing puckered in a line. He cried, I'm doomed. Alas, poor me. I wish I'd married sensibly. (laughs) Well, I didn't marry sensibly. In fact, he lost his senses for sensibility, and God sent him into a very quiet and, I would imagine, very lonely place, where at the end of his days, he was left to contemplate on the true meaning of life, and to reassess not only the true nature of obedience to God, but the ultimate ambition of what fulfills God's purposes in your life. And I fully suspect that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes from that very lonely place. I say suspect because we really don't know much more about Ecclesiastes than that it was written by someone known as the teacher, the son of David, and the king in Jerusalem, who had the unique opportunity to test all of the options and, 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 and that, that promise success in, through fame, through fortune, through intellectual pursuits and unbridled hedonism, only to discover that it's all bogus. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you have your Bibles there, in verse 14. These are the words of, a, of an anonymous, as we're now very broken and lonely man. He says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless and a chasing after wind. I would suggest that that's not a conclusion made by a single king like Solomon, who's had it all and lost it all, but it is at the core of a question encountered by each and every single one of us. If all of life's pursuits end in vanity, we have to ask ourselves the question, where can I find some meaning for my life? A reason to awaken each and every morning, knowing that there's a purpose before me. Some of you may be familiar with Bob Buford, who's written the book entitled Halftime. He defines halftime as that pause in middle life where we have no choice but to reflect on what defines us, what drives us, and has made us what we are. 
At that point in life, we discover that the pursuit of success alone is not simply enough. And that if the rest of life is going to have any meaning, my pursuit in life is going to have to change from being driven by success to finding satisfaction in something significant. There must be a shift in the focus in my life from success to significance and find a measure of peace in it. He writes these words. He says, Halftime is triggered in a person's heart by a wide array of factors. For some, it's seeing their last child go off to high school or college. Uh, it's, it's an age milestone for some. For me, by the way, I, in the absence of being here, had my 65th birthday. I'm in halftime. Well, maybe not. That would mean I've lived to be 130. But for some, it's, 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 it's a matter of an age milestone, a bad health report, or a close friend dying in their 40s or their 50s that then focuses them on their own brevity in life. For some, they're launched into halftime because they face early retirement or corporate downsizing. Success often triggers halftime because we realize that at a new level that the prospect of spending the rest of our life driving the next quarter's earnings or growing our net worth or, in Solomon's case, adding a few more wives simply doesn't cut it anymore. Halftime, when we realize just how much our winning has been costing us all along, arrives and causes us to ask the question, what's it all about? Can I make a confession? Over the last few years, I've been facing my own personal halftime, as I mentioned. And like many, I found myself done with, with, with being driven by dreams of success and making more out of my life. And I've had to turn to God to recalibrate my definition of significance and satisfaction in order to make the most of my life that remains. Which has brought me then to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where I find myself sitting along with King Solomon and, and arriving at my life verse, at least for this season of life. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4. Among any, uh, anyone uh, who is among you, the living, uh, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, I know what you're thinking. What on earth does that mean? It took me a while to figure it out, too. It it, it took me time to linger on that chapter and realize that there is more to life than the drive for success. And and I had to think about a verse like verse 7, Go, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do, to discover that God's gifts are to be found in simple things. The gentle pleasures that I I tend to overlook in my pursuit for success. And so on verse 9, I read, Enjoy life with the wife who you love. Talk about the best gift from God of all. Verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Maybe life isn't measured by achievements and awards and success, but by simple obedience. Do what is before you. 
Verse 11, the battle is not to the swift, nor does food come to the wise or, or, or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. I suspect that in looking back, Solomon finally had to concede that being God's servant meant more than being greater than all the kings in the earth in the way of riches and wisdom. In fact, maybe true greatness is much more subtle. Look at verse 15, there lived a man in in a city, a, a poor man, but a wise one. And he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody ever remembered who that poor man was. All those verses speak of a, character, of a different order of two things, of a different spirit of aspiration and a different measure of character. And in looking at that all in a whole, it it took me a while, but I finally caught the significance of those verses to return back to verse 4, where it all began to make sense. It is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Connecting those words with King Solomon, I had to confess that there, in fact, had been a season in my life where I had been been driven, I felt driven, to become the king of my jungle. (laughs) For isn't that what a lion is? to be the lion and, 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 and be possessed of such a stature that were I to raise my voice, all of the animals on the Serengeti plain would raise their heads and take notice of me. But that, the time for lions never lasts, and as we read, lions die. And in the eyes of God, it is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. And in finding significance now, I'm fixing my heart on becoming Man's best friend. (laughs) Because after all, isn't that what a dog is? (laughs) It is better to be a live dog than a dead lion. And and a living dog, man's best friend, or better yet, God's best friend, uh, brings me to a place of peace with the simple things that now come into my day. The simple things that come from his hand. The simple things that, that are before me. The humble graces, the the tender relationships, the simple tasks, the thankfulness that's in my heart for these very, very quiet gifts. It is that same sort of reflection that I find in the book of Philippians from Paul as he reflects from his own prison cell and writes briefly before his death, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's Philippians chapter 4. And reading chapter 4 of Philippians together with chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes has, has become so liberating. And with that attitude in Philippians, then Paul is able to then say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice and let your gentleness, not your greatness, your gentleness, be evident to all, for the Lord is now near. The God of peace is with you. And with that same spirit, Solomon shared the wisest words He says, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now, now that God favors what you do. And and it is even now, in, in a moment like this, where 
in our worship we have turned to him and, and have done so in humble obedience that we also now declare our utter dependence upon a God who has given us life and has sustained that life and has surrounded that life with very simple and wonderful gifts. It is now that God has poured out his favor upon you. And maybe it's just right that we end this service carrying a promise made made by our Lord Jesus Christ, a promise made in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be satisfied. Take your bread. It's a gift from the one who is the bread of life. And, and drink your wine, the one who calls himself the well of, 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 of living water. Take it and eat and do it with gladness and with a joyful heart. And do not wait. Do it now. For it is now that God favors what you do and the heart with which you do it. So setting aside all other ambitions, we come with the simple aspiration to have a life defined by the one who made us, the one who loves us, and the one who continues to give himself for us. That the Spirit enters in.